in Matthew chapter 6. And as we begin, we want to think about the great missionary to the American Indians, David Brainerd. David Brainerd is uh, famous uh, for his work among them, even though he lived a very short time. One of the reasons why we know about him was because a famous pastor and theologian named Jonathan Edwards uh, actually uh, cared for Brainerd in the last days of his life as he uh, died from illness, but he also took his journals and edited them and had them published. And uh, in fact, those journals have become the fuel for generation after generation of missionaries even today. But Brainerd wasn't always a missionary, and he didn't always know exactly how he should go into missions and what he should do. And on Monday, April 19th of one year, he wrote in his journal about how he was preparing to spend a day in prayer and fasting for direction for his life of missions. In his journal, he writes this, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer to God for his grace, especially to prepare me for the work of ministry, to give me divine aid and direction in my preparation for that great work, and in his own time to send me into the harvest. So Brainerd is setting aside an entire day to do nothing but seek God's face, the reading of his word, and through prayer, and through fasting. And later on, at the end of the day, he writes the, um, in reflecting on the fruit of that time, and here's what he says. I felt the power of intercession for precious immortal souls, for the advancement of the kingdom of my dear Lord and Savior in the world, and withal a most sweet resignation and even consolation and joy in the thoughts of suffering hardships, distress, and even death itself in the promotion of the gospel. My soul was drawn out very much for the world, for multitudes of souls. I think that I had more enlargement for sinners than for the children of God. Though I felt as if I could spend my life in cries for both. I had great enjoyment in communion with my dear Savior. I think I never in my life felt an entire weanedness from this world and so much resigned to God in everything. Oh, that I may always live to and upon my blessed God. Brainerd sought the Lord through prayer and fasting this day and he found the one that he was looking for. My question this morning is, have you ever had such a sweet experience of God's presence? Even if you haven't, do you desire such an experience of God's presence? We have been looking over the last few weeks at the subject of prayer and fasting. We began by seeing how God has responded to the prayer and fasting of his people by advancing his plan in the world. And we saw last week why it is that God's people should be fasting in this new covenant we have in Christ. And today we want to look at how we should go about fasting and praying. And to do that, we want to look at Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 6. Towards the middle of this chapter, we find Jesus' specific teaching on prayer and fasting, but really uh, it comes in a, in a, in a, at the end of a larger section, and I think it will be helpful for us to see all of it together. So we're actually going to be looking at verses 16 through 18 for our sermon, but I'm going to read beginning at verse 1, and I encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to follow along with me. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. 
Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. May God bless the reading of his word. This teaching from Jesus comes in the midst of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It is a long section of Jesus' uh, teaching material that Matthew provides for us. It is, in fact, if you begin reading the New Testament, the first uh, major teaching that Jesus uh, gives to his disciples, and it may perhaps even be the greatest Over these three chapters, Jesus covers a myriad of issues and subjects, both with piercing insight and with profound clarity about what life in God's kingdom should look like. And that is really what the entire sermon is about, Matthew's uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Some people maybe, well not even maybe, I know for a fact, some popular preachers today will even want to say that what Jesus provides in these chapters is in fact an impossibly high standard. That when we read 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, we should come away saying, there's no way I could ever live like that. It's utterly impossible and throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ, trusting him to forgive us from our inability to live this way. And I just think that's a really bad reading of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I think, number one, you, you see Jesus is teaching not to those who are lost and desiring for them to come to him. He is specifically teaching to his disciples. Matthew tells us that right at the beginning. Furthermore, I think that what you see is not an impossible goal to attain, but rather the countercultural way that Jesus' disciples are supposed to live in the kingdom of God. This is how Jesus expects his followers, even us today, to live under the direction of his word and through the empowerment of his spirit. And specifically in these verses that we read, Jesus addresses three uh, religious practices, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. These were the three things that made up the essential religious piety of Jews in his day. And what he is doing is saying, don't follow the examples that you've seen because they're bad examples. Don't look around to the world to understand how to do these things. Rather, look to me, look to God through me, and he will instruct you in the right way to live for him. And hanging over these three things is this specific warning that he gives in chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is making the point that religious hypocrisy has no part in the kingdom of God, in his kingdom. Each of these acts of piety, giving, praying, and fasting, they all have their own pitfalls. Yet in keeping with our current series, we want to focus on what Jesus had to say about fasting. 
Now, that being said, you've probably noticed, hopefully you've noticed, that in the title of each of these ser- uh, sermons, we've not just had fasting, we've had the words prayer and fasting. And that is because, um, as we said at the outset of the series, biblical fasting doesn't stand by itself. The, the goal is not for you to just sit on the couch and do nothing and not eat all day or not watch television all day, or whatever it is. The purpose of Christian fasting is the pursuit of God. It is giving up something good so that we can have more of something better. So it's not just saying, well, I'm going to fast, and I'm still going to go to work and do all my normal stuff. No, no, no. The point is to give up food or whatever it is so that you can spend time with God, so that you can talk to Him and He can talk to you. And the way that happens is through prayer and the Word. In prayer, we offer up the desires of our heart, the petitions and the things that we need to God, and He speaks to us through His Word. So if you're going to be fasting, that will be coupled with at least praying, and I hope, as we will see in the final sermon in this series, the reading of God's Word as well. That being said, Jesus gives some specific directions for fasting in these verses, and that's what we want to understand this morning. And I think what Jesus says can be summarized under two broad directions, two directions, both of which are designed to help us fast, not to draw the gaze of people to ourselves, but to draw the gaze of our Heavenly Father. So the first thing that we should do in light of Jesus' teaching here, we should fast with spiritual integrity. We should fast with spiritual integrity. Jesus begins his teaching on fasting with these words, When you fast, do not look like the hypocrites. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. Sometimes when you need to learn how to do something, it's not enough that you are told positively, here's how you do it, but you're also told negatively, here's what you don't do. And in fact, if you have young kids, sometimes it's more helpful to say, don't do this first. And then positively say, here's what you do. And frankly, most of us uh, are still kids in how we think about spiritual things. And so Jesus does the same thing. He says, the negative example comes first. Don't be like the hypocrites. So what's a hypocrite? Who who does he have in mind? Well, the word is actually a, uh, we have hypocrite, uh, is originally a Greek word. It's a compound word, which means an inability to decide. And it actually came to be used of actors in ancient Greece. They were called the hypocrites, part, in part because they were constantly changing the parts that they played. You know, today, you see a movie, there may be 500 people acting. They didn't do that in ancient Greece. They had a handful of people, and they had a little mask, and they would hold up one mask and talk and act like one character. Then they would pick up another mask and act and talk like another character. The, the point being, with the use of the word hypocrite, was that they were putting on false personas and were unable to stay with one persona. That's not far off today's meaning of hypocrite as well. And here in Matthew 6, Jesus doesn't have just some generic idea of a hypocrite in mind. He has the specific hypocrisy of the Pharisees in mind. More specifically, a particular kind of hypocrisy that the Pharisees had as a part of their life, namely doing good things for wrong reasons. Doing good things for wrong reasons. The question is, why would he even bring them up? Why would he single them out to show them as a negative example? The reason is they were the popular standard bearers for the holiness of Israel. The people were constantly looking to the Pharisees, believing they were the most righteous in the land, and comparing themselves to them, trying to live up to the standard of their life and what they did. And Jesus says that is a false example. 
In fact, this is what made the Pharisees so dangerous. They had the appearance of godliness, but their hearts were not rightly oriented towards God. And if we are going to be successful in our attempts to fast with spiritual integrity, it means we're going to have to fast different than the Pharisees, different than the hypocrites even today. That means two things. We will first avoid misguided motives. We will avoid misguided motives. Jesus says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Among many other things, the Pharisees were actually known for their fasting. In fact, many of them fasted twice a week in Jesus' day. In fact, we know the specific days in which they fasted because the early church uh, put together a, a little document called uh, the Didache, which means the teaching, and it was about basic Christian belief and basic Christian living. And they made a point of saying, hey, the hypocrites fast on this day and this day. Uh, I think it was Tuesday and Thursday. He said, don't you fast on those days. You fast on Wednesday and Friday. That way nobody will think that you're a hypocrite. Jesus says they fasted in order to be seen by others. That's why they fasted two days a week. That's why they did it regularly. It was to be seen by others. Their motive isn't actually to advance in godliness as much as it was as it was to have a reputation for godliness. This is the hypocrisy that Jesus condemns here. How did, how did they carry this out? Jesus says they look gloomy. This could have been anything from wearing funeral clothes as, a, as kind of a, a show of their humiliation. It could have literally been heaping hashes, uh, ashes on their head and making the point of walking around town where people could see them dressed like this. And you could probably imagine this. Actually, some of you probably don't have to imagine this. You probably know people like this. When they want attention, they visibly change their demeanor in order to get you to look at them and say, What's wrong? Or why are you so happy? Because they want to tell you what's going on in their life. And Jesus says that's what these hypocrites did. They don't fast and just go on their merry way. They fast and they make a show of it. They they wear the dowered, pained faces and walk around with a kind of look of weakness that suggests they're about to faint any second. Why? Just to get people to look at them. Biblical commentator Vincent Chung writes about such a person that he knew in previous years. He says this, A number of years ago, I knew a person who fasted occasionally. Sometimes he would announce it shortly before the beginning beginning his fast. Then when someone would ask him about lunch or dinner, he would put on a frown and rub his stomach, complaining that although he was famished, he could not eat because he was on a fast. Sometimes he would say this even when no one asked. He was a hypocrite, and his fasting had no spiritual value. That's not the kind of people we want to be, because those aren't the kind of people that Jesus wants in his Kingdom. If we want to be people that have spiritual integrity before God, then we will avoid misguided motives. We will remind ourselves the things we do aren't for others, but for God. The only audience we are seeking is an audience of one. Moreover, we will not only avoid misguided motives, we will also avoid misdirected hunger. We will avoid misdirected hunger. Jesus says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. In that last line, Jesus gets to the heart of the Pharisees' hypocrisy. The problem of the Pharisees wasn't inherently that people saw them fasting. It was that they wanted people to see them fasting. They were hungering for the wrong thing. Fasting is supposed to be about hungering more for God. But what were they hungering for? The praise of people. 
when they fast, they make specific efforts to make it known. And what does Jesus say? Truly, they have received their reward. In other words, they got the thing that they were seeking. They got what they were longing for. They got what they were hungering for. They were playing their own kind of hunger games fueled by misdirected cravings for the attention of men. They were play-acting righteousness instead of truly seeking righteousness. They craved more of man than they did of God. They desired the applause of men more than the approval of God. They longed to be known for their righteousness rather than actually experience righteousness. As we have said before, fasting is about giving up something good and helpful to have more of God. Why? In part because we need him. Fasting is a way to acknowledge our desperate dependence on God. It is far too easy in the church culture in which we live to just go on autopilot. We have books, we have resources, we have money, we have a building that in which to meet. We have very little uh, pressure from the outside world like in other places. And it's easy just to coast and say, we can do this. We can do this. When the reality is we can't. We can't. We will stumble, we will fall, we will never advance for God's kingdom or in God's kingdom unless we acknowledge we are utterly and totally dependent upon God. And that's what fasting is about. It's about saying we need more God in our life. It is an inherently humbling practice that in the life of these hypocrites have become a source of pride. It became the antithesis of what it was supposed to be. And Jesus says, that's not how my people should fast. That's not how the kingdom is supposed to work. When you fast, Jesus says to his disciples, fast with spiritual integrity. And you know that the reality is that the point that Jesus is making here is not just limited to fasting. It's related to any spiritual act that we do, whether it is preaching, whether it is serving as an usher, whether it's teaching a class, whether it's being at rock the block. There is always the danger that what we are doing, we are simply doing in order to be seen by others, to take something that God has given to us as an opportunity to serve and advance his kingdom and to turn it into something to, to have our own egos stroked and to cause us to think more of ourselves. And therefore, we must always be on guard about it. We must always be on guard in in the privilege of serving to allow that to become a source of pride that causes us to think we're better than other people. Just because we have promise, just because we're doing something good does not mean we are inherently more godly or spiritual than somebody else who isn't doing what we're doing. Just because you're here every other Sunday does not mean, or every Sunday rather, does not mean that you are inherently more spiritual than someone who misses a couple weeks. Just because I stand at the front and proclaim God's word does not mean I'm inherently more spiritual than those of you who sit in the pew. I think the people who will likely be closest to God in the new heavens and the new earth, those who have the most righteousness are probably the people that we've never even heard of. They will not be the people who have been up front, but the people who have been faithfully serving in the pews. And therefore, there is this, there is this overriding concern from chapter 6, verse 1, that we have spiritual integrity in what we do and in how we go about serving God. That also applies to fasting. And we should not simply fast for spiritual integrity. We should also fast for spiritual intimacy. We should fast for spiritual intimacy. 
In verse 16, Jesus presented the negative instruction about fasting. Here's what the disciples should not do. Now in verse 17, he changes gears. He shifts his emphasis and he is showing now positively this is how you should go about fasting. The how and the why, as we will see, of kingdom fasting is rooted in spiritual intimacy with God. That means first that we should be unseen in fasting. We should be unseen in fasting. Jesus says, do not fast like the hypocrites, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Unlike the hypocrites who went out of their way to look gloomy before others, Jesus says their disciples should go about the normal way of living so as not to draw attention to, them, to themselves and their fasting. He says, wash your face, anoint yourself with oil, do the kind of things you would normally do living in a Middle Eastern environment where it's dry and dusty and sandy. In other words, keep up your appearances so that nothing changes. And again, you, you can just see how people would... would, would would be so tempted to fast and make a point of wearing it like a badge. And Jesus says, don't do that. He says, if at all possible, no one should know you're fasting because you're not desiring to be seen by others. Now, when we hear that, there's a problem that should come to our mind, at least to some degree. For one of the reasons we're doing this series on prayer and fasting is because as, as the elders of this church, we are calling the, the membership of this church to join us in a monthly public regular fast and there are some that would argue such a thing goes directly against what jesus is teaching here fast and do not be seen by others so the question is what about it are we directly leading the church into disobeying jesus commands well obviously we don't think that or else we wouldn't be doing it but the question is how does the call for a public fast how does a call for god's people to fast together knowingly gel with what jesus is teaching here and first of all, we would say this, that's not how the early church understood Jesus' teaching. They did not understand Jesus' teaching here as being uh, a, a forbiddance of gathering together for a public fast. And all we have to do is go back to the first sermon we saw in the series in Acts 13. The whole church, it seemed like in Antioch, was fasting. They were not afraid. They only come together to worship and to, uh, th- th- through, through singing and through the reading of Scripture and through praying, but they were not afraid to fast. They didn't say, man, God might not like this. They came together to show how much they desire God to make his presence known. And the reality is when you read that chapter, God is openly and obviously blessing them. He is speaking directly to them, giving them directions for sending out missionaries. Therefore, it seems, at least to me, pretty clear it wasn't in disobedience that they had gathered together for a corporate fast where everyone knows that everyone else is fasting. In fact, it was something that God honored and blessed. Furthermore, I think that to say that we can never let someone know when we are fasting actually misses the point that Jesus is making here. His point is still not on whether or not people see you, but why and how they're seeing you. The point is on the intention and the attitude of why people are going to know that you're fasting. Jesus says, do not fast so as to be seen by others. That is to say, he is discouraging us from making the mistake of the hypocrites. A mistake that we can make even in trying to follow Jesus' teaching. For example, one of my seminary professors talked about a guy that he knew 
uh, who uh, in the King James Bible read Jesus say just a few verses before this, when you pray, go into your closet and pray in secret for your Father in heaven uh, will see you in secret. And so he would literally go into the, the family closets at his house in order to pray. However, um, he would go in there at inopportune times when he knew someone else was going to be getting in that closet to put away folded laundry or something else, not only scare the dickens out of his other family members as they see him in there, but he was, he was doing it in order to be seen by others. Other times he would walk down the hallway and loudly slam the closet door as he went in there with his flashlight and his Bible to pray. Other times, like the professor said, he would actually announce, don't come looking for me, I'm going into the closet to pray. Now, is he following literally what Jesus said? Yes, but he's missing the intention, isn't he? In Jesus' own words, he's straining out a gnat from his drinking water while at the same time swallowing a camel. He missed the point of Jesus' teaching. Likewise, when it comes to fasting, the point is that we never tell people that we're fasting. The point is to say, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you even fasting? Are you doing it as a show? Are you doing it trying to impress people so that people will think more highly of you? That's what Jesus is pointing out as a sin. That's what it means to be unseen in our fasting. It's not to keep it a secret per se, but it's that we're seeking not to draw attention to it. We're not seeking to hold it out for all to see. Instead of seeking to be seen by others, we should instead be seeking to be seen by God. This brings us to the second way in which we should be fasting for spiritual intimacy. It's by being unseen and fasting, and secondly, by being seen by our Father. When you fast, be seen by your Father. Jesus says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We fast not to be seen by others, but to be seen by God. After all, it's his face that we're seeking in prayer and fasting. That's the whole point. If we're not doing that, we're missing the point of fasting, and we shouldn't do it. It should be his presence that we are desiring. It's him that we should be hungering for. And just as Asa was told by God's prophet, if you seek him, he will be found by you. So also today, God is not far off. James promises, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And notice what kind of God we find. Our Father. Our Father. Jesus says that it is our Father who will see us. Of all the appropriate names and titles for God that we find throughout the scriptures, Jesus singles in on this one. And he gives it, as it were, as a gift to the new covenant people. God is not just the father of Israel. He is not just the father of his people. He is not just as the creator, the father of the world. But now he is intimately your father. You are his sons and daughters. God is called the most high, the holy one, the sovereign, a king, a warrior, a shield, a fortress, a refuge, a shepherd, the commanders of the, army, the commander of the armies of heaven, the savior of the sons of Adam, and so much more throughout the scriptures. And he is all of those things. But as he is all of those things, we get to come to him on the intimate terms as father and son, as father and daughter. For those who have embraced Christ and Savior, this is true. To those who have turned away from their sin and sought forgiveness from God because of the atoning death and justifying resurrection of Christ, whereby through faith their sin is considered laid on him and Christ's righteousness is considered their own. For them, this infinite, all-glorious God is their Father. And as Jesus says elsewhere, his Father is one who loves to give good gifts to his children. 
Jesus says, when you seek God, when you seek your heavenly Father in fasting, you will receive his reward. Now the question is, what is this reward? What is this reward that we are going to be given? The truth is, Jesus doesn't tell us exactly. But I think the broader context of Matthew and even the immediate context of Matthew 6 gives us a pretty good clue. Jesus has just told his disciples what they should pray for in the verses right before this. Before we ever get to personal needs, he says, three desires should govern our prayers as God's people. We should pray for God's name to be hallowed, that is to be considered holy. It's already holy. It needs to be known and appreciated for being holy. We need to pray for his kingdom to come, and we need to pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are the three governing concerns that should stand behind and under and above all other praying. In other words, whatever we ask for ourselves or someone else should be in line with those three things. That's what Jesus tells us in verses 9 through 10. And if we pray for that, if we long for that, if we fast for those things, then the reward is actually receiving those things. The reward is our rejoicing to see the name of the Father considered holy, to see the fullness of his kingdom come into this world and for all to obey and desire his will to be done. In this way, John Broadus is surely right when he says that our reward will be something we receive both in time, that is now, and eternity, both in character and in felicity. In other words, the reward of God comes to us now. As, as something joyful and transforming, and it also comes to us in the life to come, in the new heavens and the new earth. John Newton, the slave trader whom God saved and called to preach, the one who song Amazing Grace, we just sang a few minutes ago, once wrote a letter to a young friend describing the reward of seeking the Lord. And here's what he said. I wish I could write letters like this. We know from experience how little regarding and or how little reading and hearing and resolving can do for us when the Lord is absent and our hearts are in a hard and stupid frame. Alas, how can we render unless we first receive? But oh, when his spirit and power are with us, what a delightful, surprising change. Then old things become new, hard things easy, and out of weakness we are made strong. Then our enemies attempt in vain to find and ensnare us. He enables us to run through their troops, to leap over their walls, to esteem their darts and swords as straw and rotten wood, and go forth in his strength, conquering and to conquer. I hope my letter will find you in this experience with your bow abiding in force and your enemies under your feet, and it may long continue. This is a privileged, glorious state indeed, but it calls for much watchfulness and prayer. The Lord expects a particular closeness and obedience from those whom he thus delights to honor. And Satan watches with envy and rage to find an opening by which to assault such a soul. I hope you will remember that all your comfort and prosperity depends upon keeping near to him who is the sun, the shield, the life of this poor children. And that neither experiences, knowledge, nor attainments can support us or maintain themselves without a continual supply from the fountain. This supply is kept up by constant prayer, and prayer will languish without continual watchfulness. Those are wise pastoral words. And how better to arouse our souls to watchfulness than by fasting from the comforts which put us so at ease 
in this world and dilute our appetite for God and reduce our awareness of sin. How better to experience the joyful assurance of God's fatherhood over us than by seeking him through prayer and fasting. But how shall we fast? Shall we reduce it to another means of exalting ourselves before others, seeking to be seen by them and receiving our hollow reward of a vainglorious life? Or will we desire to be seen by God? Will we seek his smiling face, his satisfying presence, his sanctifying power in our life? Jesus says, not if, but when his people fast, it will be a radical, God-centered, kingdom-driven fast. May we seek that kind of fast for our lives individually and as a church body. Father, we are so thankful for your son who saves us, but also who instructs us. God, all of the scriptures point to him, but there is something especially sweet about reading his very words preserved and recorded through the providential working of your spirit in the lives of his apostles. God, we are thankful that we are not left to discern your will for ourselves, to wonder at what you would have us to do, but that, God, you have told us and revealed us and continue to encourage us on how to believe and live through your word and your spirit. Father, we pray as we think about this instruction on fasting, God, that we would not only think specifically about that, but about all that we do, that we would be wary of the temptation to be hypocrites, that, God, you would preserve us from that, that you would cause us to experience humility before Christ, knowing how much we truly need him to be right with you and to live successful, godly lives in this world. We pray, Father, that you would make us not only a praying people, but a fasting people as well. We might know more deeply, more intimately, your presence, God. Therefore, help us to fast with integrity. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.